0: joke goes that a man was stranded on a deserted island, and years later a ship spotted the smoke from the island, came over there, rescued him, and on the way back to the ship uh, somebody asked this guy, what are those three buildings that you've built on top of the hill? And he said, well, the one off to the left is my home, and the one way off to the right is my church, and the one in the middle used to be my church until my feelings got hurt. Uh, Apparently, he was having discussions with me, myself, and I, and he couldn't even keep himself together. (laughs) And um, there are many similar church jokes that pastors tell, most of them probably as poor as that one, um, that deal with the whole issue of what makes for healthy churches. There are a lot of people who are looking for a perfect church, even though they recognize there is no such thing as a perfect church. But I think in this verse, verse 31, we've got a description of a vibrant, a very healthy church. Actually, it's a bunch of healthy and vibrant churches. Not perfect, because we're going to be seeing as we go through the book that there are issues that come up in these churches, but they were definitely healthy. They were definitely vibrant churches. And I believe this passage is as close to a description of the ideal church as uh, you can get. Luke begins the sentence by saying, then. And in the Greek it's literally and therefore and some translations render it and so. But the Greek men un is really designed to show the context of what he's going to be talking about. It indicates that this healthy church did not arise in a vacuum. It arose out of great tribulation. It arose then when all of those bad things that he's been describing have been going on. Now does that mean that in order to have a a healthy church, we have to have great tribulation. And I would say no. If you're a post-millennialist like I am, or if you're a premillennialist, you believe that in the future there's going to be a long period of history when there is an ideal church, but there won't be any persecution. Why? Because uh, all of the enemies of the church have been saved. And so there doesn't have to be a tribulation in order to have uh, a perfect church. But that word then, I think, clues us in to uh, some things, first of all, the context, uh, and it also indicates that an ideal church can emerge from great tribulation by god's grace. Now the reason I even bother to give that point is it's not automatic. There are some people, and there are some churches that come out of tribulation much the worse for the wear. Uh, I have seen two individuals going through exactly the same trials and tribulations, and one person comes out bitter and angry and miserable, and the other person comes out uh, very uh, much closer to God, comes out the better for it. Why? Because the second person has made good use of those trials by God's grace. And the same can be true of churches as a whole. Uh, It's sort of like the uh, attempts that have been made over the last 150 years to produce artificial diamonds. Uh, Researchers recognize that diamonds are formed by carbon, that has been uh, put under intense heat and pressure under the ground and so uh, they've been working for uh, over a hundred years with various types of machines trying to exert pressure on various forms of carbon and and heat and they were completely unsuccessful until uh, a man, actually two people discovered it uh, pretty close to the same time and uh, the first person who discovered it didn't uh, patent it because his company wanted them to keep it secret for a while. And so he never got the credit. But uh, the first time, it was a catalyst that they introduced. It was a form of iron. And just immediately, these crystals, these uh, diamonds, uh, began to appear. Well, it was in the same way uh, that it was the grace of Christ that enabled these churches to make good use of this uh, tribulation. And so the context of tribulation does not on its own produce character, It's through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that word then indicates it's possible to get through great tribulation, to be the better for it. Secondly, it indicates that these people weren't being persecuted because they were bad. That's the immediate conclusion that some people jump to when they're being persecuted. I must be being punished by the Lord. What's wrong with me? And yet, in this circumstance, it was the exact opposite. And uh, many times that's the case. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, "All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. As long as there are God-haters and Christ-haters around, there's going to be Christian haters. And so uh, this word then indicates we shouldn't be surprised. Third, it indicates that God can stop the persecution any time that He desires." It was at the height of this persecution that boom, all of a sudden, the persecution stops. Uh, God never makes Christians face trials and tribulations nonstop, and I think we can praise the Lord for this. Uh, He knows how much pressure we can uh, take. 1 Peter 1.6 speaks of the fire they were going through as being for a little while. And maybe some of you have been going through some pressures and some trials, and you're wondering, Lord, I don't think I can take much more of these uh, trials and the fire that you are putting us through. We can rest assured the Lord does not put us through more than what we can handle. Nonstop persecution, the Lord knows, can destroy uh, some people. But it takes people who have gone through the fire to really appreciate peace and prosperity and make the best use of it. And I think in America, we're at a stage where people have peace, they have the prosperity, and they could continue in that peace and prosperity, but they're abusing it. Uh, and it's almost like we're in that cycle in Judges, where we're going right back down again, that third generation that has the peace and the prosperity is an inheritance from the fathers, but we're abusing it, we're misusing it, and the Lord has to say, well, I guess you're going to have to go through the fire as well. It doesn't have to be, but many times it is. And so remember the context. Healthy, vibrant churches do not arise in a vacuum. But let's look at the five blessings that God pours out upon these churches that are ready, they're prepared to receive them. First blessing is peace. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and that's as far as the persecution has gone right now, right? Throughout that whole area, it says, had peace. Uh, the term peace can have a wide range of meanings. It can mean wholeness, success. Uh There's 21 different meanings for it, but I think uppermost in uh, Luke's mind here is especially the conflict that they had from outside the conflict that they had uh, from inside and um, having that kind of peace is truly a blessing I do not pray for persecution I pray for a holiness that can appreciate the blessing of peace But to me, this shows the sovereignty of God at work. Commentators point out that this persecution did not stop with the conversion of Saul. In fact, it had actually heated up. They were after Saul. In fact, for the rest of his life, they're trying to kill Saul. So it didn't stop because of his uh, conversion. Instead, God was giving them a reprieve from their persecution because they didn't need the persecution anymore. Okay, God didn't have any more purpose in their lives. And how did that persecution stop? To me, this is really intriguing, how Luke just kind of brushes over it real quickly. It's almost as if Luke is saying, you know, it's no big deal for God to turn it off any time that he chooses. Now, let me give you, uh, from the Jewish historian Josephus' eyes, what was happening at this time and how God orchestrated all of this uh, stoppage of um, persecution. God brought so many changes in A.D. 36 through 37 that the Jewish leaders had to stop everything that they were doing to deal with the crisis events that God was bringing into their lives. And I'll just give you a sampling. In A.D. 36, the Roman governor Vitellius succeeded Pontius Pilate. And as soon as he became governor, uh, he deposed Caiaphas the high priest and put Jonathan in his place. The next year, he deposed Jonathan and put uh, Theophilus in place, so there was turmoil amongst the Jewish leadership. Then secondly, the Roman emperor Tiberius died, and he was succeeded by Caligula. Now, everybody knows Caligula was uh, quite a scoundrel, and in fact, he almost acted insane, perhaps a demon-possessed, and he played havoc with Israel. Now, one of his very close friends, uh, Herod Agrippa I, Uh, asked if he could become the king. So he authorized him to become the king of that whole uh, area of Palestine there. And uh, Agrippa I brought all kinds of changes. To please Caligula, the pagan citizens, who were a minority, the pagan citizens of the small town of Jamnia, erected an altar of worship to Caligula. Well, you can recognize that that would tick off the Jews... They demolished this uh, altar, which infuriated Caligula. When he found out, he says, okay, they don't like that altar. We're going to put an image of me as God into their temple. And when the Jewish leaders found out about this, they knew there was going to cause civil war. It was going to just be a devastating thing. Uh, Petronius, the governor of Syria, brings half of his army to enforce this order. And so the leaders, they go in three different groups, rending their clothes and putting sackcloth and ashes and prostrating themselves before Petronius. And Petronius is really moved. He's touched by this and he says, well, I'll see what I can do. He writes a letter to Caligula. He says, well, why you know, he tells him what, what had happened. Why don't we just not do this? Well, that really angers him and he's upset with Petronius and he's deciding he's going to secretly bring an image into the temple. And if you read through this period of history you can see all kinds of fascinating political intrigues uh, that are going on. It's almost as if God is saying, these guys um, want to uh, heat up the persecution again. I'm just going to tweak something over here, tweak something over here. I'll keep them busy. They're going to be so diverted, they're not going to have the time to think about these Christians. And uh, they think that they're in control. They're not. They are pawns in God's hands. It says in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like channels of water. He turns it wherever he wants. Some people have wondered, how in the world could this persecution just boom, stop all of a sudden throughout Jerusalem and everywhere when they hate these Christians so much? And in chapter 12, they begin the persecution again. Well, we know why. God's in charge. And uh, God can turn it off any time that he chooses. And so. Peace really is a gift from God. And you can see why Psalm 127 says we need to pray to God for the peace of Jerusalem. Why 1 Timothy 2 verse 2 says we need to pray to God for kings and all who are in authority that we may, we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. What God is saying there is God not only rules in the church, he rules in the affairs of kings as well. He controls everything that goes on in this world, and we can have confidence that no persecution can come against you except such as God has ordained for your good and for His glory. They are pawns in His hand. Now, I mentioned that I don't think that the peace is simply the the turmoil that came at the church from outside, but also the peace that God was delivering within the church of Jesus Christ itself. And that is a wonderful gift. Um... God can cause that peace to rule in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says about the family that God has called us to peace. It doesn't happen automatically. Even though it's a gift of God, we're responsible to pray for it. We're responsible to work at it, to pursue it. Uh, Paul's admonition to the Colossians is, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. And so we're to let it rule. We're called to that peace within the body of Jesus Christ. And in context, Colossians 3.15 shows a number of ways in which we can let the peace of God rule within the church, in which we can be pursuing uh, the peace of God within that church. And so peace is one of the signs of a healthy family, according to 1 Corinthians 7. It's one of the signs of a healthy church, according to Colossians chapter 3. And so the first thing I would say is if we want to have an ideal church, we must be a church that not only seeks peace from God, but strives for peace with each other and prays for peace from outside. We need to be characterized by peace in our families and elsewhere. Second blessing is edification. Verse 31 says that these churches had peace and were edified. Now, edification literally means to build a house But here it's used metaphorically of the church. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You also as living stones are being built up. That's exactly the same word for edified. Are being built up a spiritual house. And in context, who is the one doing the building? It's God who builds up this church and brings together these different people as living stones. Isn't that what Jesus said? I will build my church. He's going to be the one who will edify it. And he's going to be the one who makes it conformable to his image. Now, if you examine all of the passages on edification, one of the things that you'll find is that to be edified means to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be made like Christ. Uh, and the words that make us like Christ are the words from the Scripture. I read an article one time that said, uh, to edify one another... Uh, like there's one context I think it was writing about, edifying your wife and edifying your husband, you have to always just speak uh, positive words. It had nothing to do with Scripture. It just said, you need to build one another up by, and then it said, saying only nice things. No criticism. Criticism never edifies. Well, Paul actually uh, criticized the church, and uh, he said that he was edifying them. And uh, we'll look at that in a bit. But uh, Christ is the ultimate builder, and yet we have a part to play. Romans 14, verse 19 uh, says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. How do we pursue things that edify one another? Well, I would say, in a nutshell, it means that we need to be we need to be patterning our words after Christ's words. We need to be patterning our methods and our goals after Christ's methods and goals. Otherwise, the house that we're building is a different house than Christ is building. See, he's building his church, and if we are to be a part of that building, we've got to come alongside of his words, his goals, his methods, his ways of doing things. Otherwise, it's something that we're building all on our own. And even the officers of a church who are commanded to edify, build up the church, can only do it as they speak the words of Christ and do it in His way. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> this is one of several passages that speaks about how we can edify uh, one another and edify the church as a whole. And it doesn't mention support groups and esteem groups. And therapy sessions and methods of making people feeling, you know, really good. Instead, it's a very, very old-fashioned and out of date with today's mandates. Praise God. Uh, Romans, Ephesians 4, beginning at verse seven, <clears throat> it says, "But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift." First thing that we see is it flows; it all flows from grace. And that grace doesn't flow through the session to the members. It's given to each member directly by Christ. Now, God does give leaders later on in verse 11, but these leaders, they're not CEOs, they're not CFOs, they're not mediators for sure between Christ and men, right? God gives this grace directly to the individuals. They are the ones who are involved in the edification process. And so God does not envision some grand, centralized megachurch or a centralized small church in which there are 45 different programs, you know, that's top-down, as it were, and all kinds of age-segregated ministries trying to make sure you guys get edified. He does it the very reverse. He immediately gives His grace for edification into every member's life. It's a grassroots thing from the bottom up. Verse 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. We'll be seeing that the spiritual gifts are a part of that edification process. Verse 9. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, who did he give these five kinds of leaders to? He gave them to the church, right? Which implies that the church was already in existence before he gave those leaders, right? There are some people who act as if a church can't exist without any leaders. Now, it may not be ideal, but in Ephesians chapter... Let's see, what did I write in the, note, in the margins here? In Ephesians chapter 14, verse 23... It says that Paul went from city to city establishing elders in every church. There were already established churches in these various cities, and he put the leaders in there. Why? Because leaders help to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but the equipping's already been going on, right? The members from the grassroots up are involved in this ministry of edification. I do want you to notice the historical and the logical order in which these leaders are grouped. He's already mentioned uh, that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church, and that's in Ephesians 2, verse 20. Ephesians 2, verse 20. He says, "...having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets." Uh, That's a, a key phrase there. The word having been built, that's exactly the same Greek word that we've been looking at for edifying. Okay, edifying. And so you could translate it, having been edified on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, what was it that the church was building each other with? And the thing that they were building each other with was the Scriptures that the apostles and prophets had given to them. Okay, The apostles and prophets' role was to give the New Testament Scriptures, to complete the canon... And because they're not a part of the later building project, they're just a part of the foundation, there are no more apostles or prophets. Okay? They were part of the foundation. And so the offices have passed away. But are the apostles and prophets still speaking to us? Absolutely, yes, they are. They speak through the scriptures and they're going to continue to speak, continue to be the foundation uh, all the way through to the second coming. Uh, we don't have an absence of the apostles and prophets. We've got it all written down here. Once the foundation is built, the church keeps getting built upon that. Now, you keep looking at the... Um, the um, well, let, let me just finish the thought on this. This does away a then with a large portion of what people uh, bring into churches by way of sociology, psychology, and other things where we're taking the wisdom of man... And we're trying to merge it with the scriptures. There can be no other foundation than what the Lord has laid. And it's a revelational foundation. And so he says there in Ephesians chapter 2 that it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Okay, if you can't find it in the word, it's not edification. Uh, Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so back to Ephesians 4 and verse 11, the reason that the apostles and the prophets come first is because they are the foundation of the Word of God. And the interesting thing about the remaining three officers, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher, is that the Scripture says they may not go beyond that foundation. They have to be speaking what the apostles and prophets have given to us in the Word. I have no authority except for the authority of Scripture, right? Uh, I have to be preaching the Word, the whole Word, and nothing but the Word. And so back to Ephesians 4, verse 12. It says, For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So every saint has a part of the work of the ministry and every saint is involved in this edifying of the body of Christ and that's going to keep happening until the second coming. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man or a mature man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so there's the goal of all edification. It's to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Not to feel good, I mentioned earlier, some people say if you criticize, that's not edifying, that's tearing down. Listen to what Paul said just after he had given a rebuke to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13.10 says, I gave this rebuke, quote, According to the authority which the Lord has given me, for edification and not for destruction. In other words, his goal was not to tear them down. His goal was to build them up, to make them like Christ. And they were walking in the wrong direction. Of course, he has to bring a criticism or a rebuke to bring them back to the goal of being like Christ. Verse 14, he says that we should no longer be children, so growth and maturity is a part of edification tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So we can see edification is closely related to doctrine. Doctrine has to be practical, has to be lived out. So verse 15, speaking the truth in love, there's the context of edification that needs to be done in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined, there's the gatherings, and knit together by what every joint supplies, there is mutual ministry, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share means every one of you is needed in the church if we're to have the kind of edification that the scripture says we must have causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love now if you if you um, uh, have any of those components in Ephesians chapter four missing. If they're chopped off, the church becomes stunted. So if you want to know what does an ideal church look like when it comes to edification, you need to look to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 describes that edification process. And if we miss out on the means of grace, such as church attendance, communion, teaching, devotions, uh, if we miss out on the work that teachers bring, the leaders bring, if we miss out on the mutual ministry of the saints we'll still be there, we'll still be Christians, we'll still be a church, we're going to be a stunted church. Uh, the Japanese developed the bonsai tree, um, and uh, they, they did it by not allowing that tree to grow to its full potential. I used to think that that was a genetically modified dwarf tree, and the bonsai tree is not. It's a regular tree or a regular bush, and what they've done is they've tied off the taproot or just clipped off the taproot. And they've flipped off several of the feeder branch roots and then planted it back in the ground again. And because it's lacking those roots, it's not able to take up enough of the nutrients from the soil to grow like it was intended to grow. And so it, it doesn't die, but it becomes a dwarf tree. <clears throat> well, this is what Satan tries to do in the church. If he can tie off or prune off the taproot of prayer, or the feeder roots of personal devotions, of, of a mutual ministry of the saints, of going into worship. And some of these different things, fellowship together, he can stunt Christians in their walk. A vibrant and growing church is a church where all of its members are being edified. They're edifying each other in the Scriptures and in God's grace. The next blessing in Acts 9, verse 31 is the blessing of liveliness. So, as <clears throat> walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And I want to focus on that phrase, "walking." Walking implies life. It implies we're practicing what we preach. Uh, one New Year's Day at the um, uh, 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 Tournament of Roses uh, parade, one of the what do they call them? The floats came to a stop, and held up the whole parade, and on the TV you could see this guy dashing out of his truck, running to a gas station, getting a gas can, and pouring it into the gas tank. And what was humorous about it was that this was the standard oil company's float. <laughs> Here's a company, you know, whole life is giving gas to people, and their car runs out. And sometimes I think that's the way it is with Christians. We have a profession of what we stand for, that we are endued from on high with power from above. That's what Christ promised to the church. And yet we cut that off, we short-circuit it with neglect, with sin, and, and uh, we do not live or we do not walk the walk uh, that we should be. And sometimes it's just because of laziness. This word walking also implies strength and maturity. Babies don't walk. Sick people don't walk. You know, they're in, uh, they're in bed. Walking also implies progress. We're not standing still, we're progressing, we're moving forward. And unfortunately, there are some Christians who have had great accomplishments in the past. And you can see people like this. Uh, even David was tempted to this for a while when he just stayed back and was wandering around, you know, at the time of Bathsheba. But they've had great accomplishments, but they're satisfied with the past, and they're standing still. There should never be a time when Christians are not stretching and moving themselves forward like Caleb and like Joshua did. Walking implies progress. This word walking also implies you know your direction. If you're lost, you don't tend to keep walking. You start looking around, where am I, right? But if you're walking, it implies you know your direction, but most important in this context, I think it implies you're in agreement with God. These churches weren't walking in their own strength, wisdom, and honor. They're walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And I want to look at those two phrases because both of them show the reality of God's presence in their consciousness and in their living. First of all, it says they were walking in the fear of the Lord. And I want to spend a little bit more time on this phrase because I think this is the area that the church in America is the weakest on. So many people have no fear of God before their eyes. And yet this verse makes fear of God one of the signs of a vital and a healthy church. It's got to be there. there's a part of the movie Jurassic Park uh, where the world-class paleontologist Alan Grant uh, who's devoted his entire life to studying dinosaurs, di- dinosaur bones and whatnot, he comes face to face with a real live uh, dinosaur. And uh, he falls to the ground. Apparently has had quite an adrenaline rush because there's quite a different thing knowing about dinosaurs by studying their bones and coming face to face with a living dinosaur. And the same is true of Christianity. It is quite different to know about God from a book And to know God as a person, I believe it is impossible to know God very long without beginning to develop a healthy fear, a healthy respect for this God of the universe and the fear ever crossing him. For many people, spirituality means picking through the artifacts of faith that survived from a long time ago, like a paleontologist, piecing the information together and coming up with doctrines. Now, don't get me wrong. I think paleontology spiritually is wonderful. I'm excited about doctrine. I love studying it. It gives me a spiritual high to study doctrine. But that's not enough. Okay? It's quite different to actually know God. It takes a consciousness of God being with you in all of His presence, His power, His holiness to develop a healthy fear. And one of the marks of these churches is that they walked in the fear of God. They saw the miracles of God. They saw God acting in their midst. Now, if you defy God, I can guarantee you, you do not have the fear of the Lord. If you can willfully continue to persevere in sin, you do not have the fear of the Lord. It it ought to give us the heebie-jeebies to defy God. It's like a little kid running toward the edge of the Grand Canyon, not afraid at all, because he has no idea of the danger that's right in front of him. There have been several times in my life where I've had the opportunity to either climb a cliff or to stand at the edge of a cliff. And I tell you, the closer you get to the edge of the cliff, the more of this feeling of some kind of a fear begins to come into you. Now, I already had the fear even before I had the feeling of the fear because the fear really was a respect for not wanting to fall 500 feet on your head, right? And so it's a healthy thing. But the closer I would get to the edge, the more I could feel that fear climbing up uh, inside of me. Now, I think all of you would recognize that's a wonderful thing to have. In fact, it's an evidence you've got a sound mind, right? You don't have a sound mind if you go leaping off a cliff seeing if you can fly. And so people have misinterpreted 2 Timothy 1.7 when it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's a totally different Greek word. If you look up the meaning of that Greek word in the dictionary, you will see that that word, first, first definition right off the bat is cowardice. It's a craven fear. It's cowardice. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. Of course not. But God has given us a spirit of a fear of the Lord. And you do not have a sound mind if you do not have the fear of the Lord. Uh, I was uh, telling some of the guys at uh, Jonathan's house last night the story of um, the beehives that I had out in Ethiopia. We had, uh, my dad and I, between 17 and 20 hives. And we had three different kinds of bees. Uh, One of them was approximately as tame as the Italian bees. And we had another one that was an African bee that was a little bit more aggressive. And then there were the killer bees. And we only had one hive of those. But most of my hives were made by putting bamboo sticks into the ground. And then you would weave the bamboo all the way around it, about this big around, about six feet high. And you'd never guess what they waterproofed those with. They would smear fresh cow manure all over the outside of this thing. Then they would put bamboo leaves on and spread some more cow manure. Ooh, it made a Cadillac uh, uh, beehive. It was great because it was completely waterproof. And then you would smoke it over some special herbs that would give it a smell that would attract the bees. And then you'd hang it up in a tree. Now, you better be suited up right when you're up in the tree because, boy, it's tough to come down out of a tree as fast as you want to come out of a tree. Uh, when those bees are after you, but I loved my beehives, and it was just a, a hobby for me to be out there. But one of the beehives that we had, ha- <coughs> and it was the only one that was in America, my dad's American style boxed uh, beehives. Killer bees got into there. And those killer bees, we thought, they produce so much honey, far more than any of the other bees. Let's go ahead and put it way off to the side and. Let's just go ahead and experiment with those. But uh, there was some troubles with those bees. These bees are so dangerous with no provocation. The missionary who was there before us, uh, he was just walking down a path and they covered him and uh, just about stung him to death. The Ethiopians were trying to get all the bees off of him. It damaged his health, you know, the rest of his life. And many people have been killed by these killer bees. So it was a little bit risky hanging on to these, but uh, we did. And um, one time we had a conference of a thousand elders from all of the churches around. And some kid, for some reason, we don't know what possessed him, threw a stone at that box and the bees chased him and he ran right into the conference. And I tell you, you never seen uh, old people run so fast. (laughs) Every human, every donkey and horse, all of the dogs, were driven off of the compound. It took us hours to get those back. And so my parents were pretty upset with me. They said, you're going to go uh, kill those bees. My mom sent me, first of all, with some bug spray up to the conference area trying to get those taken care of. And so my dad showed me how to kill them. You melt sulfur, you put cloth in it, and you fold it up, and then when it's hard, at nighttime, when they're not supposed to come out, but these ones even attack you at night, you light it, you stick it inside, and the smoke instantly kills uh, the bees, so we had to get rid of those. But I got a lot of stories about those bees that um, were kind of fun stories in hindsight, not so fun at the time. Uh, I remember one time we were trying to transfer these killer bees into another box, and I thought I was invincible. I had my net on, my hat, my gloves, I was all tied up I forgot to tie off my pant legs these. These are smart suckers. Man, hundreds of these bees just started swarming up my legs. And it's the first time in my life I became a charismatic. I was dancing like crazy, trying to kill these things. Made a beeline for my bedroom where I could take my pants off and spray with bug spray. And I looked over to the side, and there was um, Smith, uh, the missionary, uh, laughing through the window. He just thought this was the most hilarious thing to see see me dancing like that. But uh, anyway, when I was suited up, I had no, I I mean, I, I had a respect for these fears, but I didn't have that adrenaline rush for the most part, and I loved these bees because of the way they produced honey. I loved working with them. I came boldly to them. I was in absolutely no danger to them, but if I tried to approach them without a bee suit, it was all over, okay? I sometimes did feel an adrenaline rush even when I was suited up because they would cover your net so thick you could not see out and you're trying to brush them with your glove uh, like a windscreen, I mean like, not a windscreen, a windshield wiper and uh, you could smell the bee venom as they're trying to sting, they're squirting through the, the thing. So that can a little bit freak you out too because you realize what you're dealing with. There's a power out there that you're dealing with but they produced a pile Of honey. So if you didn't, most of the bees, if you didn't mess with them, they didn't mess with you. That was not true of these killer bees. Uh, Even though this is not a perfect illustration, and I I recognize that it's not, uh, that is sort of how it is with God. He loves us. We love Him. He has permitted us to come boldly into His presence when we are clothed in the righteous garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we are not suited up in Christ... In other words, if we're unbelievers, all that we're going to see is the terror of the Lord to destroy us, right? So we come in Christ. We can come boldly. We don't need to be timid. We don't need to be cowards. And uh, the times, though, that the scriptures speak of people coming before the Lord, they fall flat on their face before the Lord and they haven't even seen him. They've just seen a theophany of his glory. They've not even seen him. You know, think of Daniel. He doesn't even see God. All he sees is an angel. He falls on his face. He is so weak he cannot stand. The angel has to touch him to strengthen him. And so when you see people who treat God like a, you know, an old buddy that you slap on the back and you see some of the irreverent prayers that they give, it just makes me shudder. It is blasphemy. Our God is a holy God who must be reverenced. He must be reverenced. And to rebel against God is even more foolish. Now, as a Christian, we can come boldly, but let me tell you, even as a Christian, when you are willfully sinning against God, it is as foolish as not tying off your pant legs when you're going to deal with those killer bees. Now, to use another analogy, children can cuddle in their father's lap and experience fellowship when they're in right relationship with God, but if they rebel against God and He has to bring out the rubber hose there is some fear and trembling, and with my kids, probably some dancing as well, right? Uh, but even when they're not in trouble, they have that healthy respect to not want to cross over the line. And the Scripture calls that fear. That reverence does not translate into a lack of love. When right really related... They can be all over Dad. They can be on his lap. They can have fun with him. They can cuddle with him. In fact, they'll have a whole lot more fun than I had with those bees, right? They can have a lot of fun with Dad. The love, the boldness of approach are in the context of a healthy fear. And that's exactly how the book of Hebrews ties boldness and fear together. Three times Hebrews tells us we can have boldness with God, but those passages tell us how to come boldly. It says we must come boldly with fear and reverence and awe. How can those be held together? I really think they can be. Um, let me read you three of the eight passages where Hebrews commands us to fear God. He tells believers in Hebrews 10, the Lord will judge his people. So we're not talking about pagans here, right? We're talking about Christians, uh, believers, believers who can come boldly to the throne of grace to ask for mercy. So he says, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful for who? It's fearful for believers, right? Who are judged. Believers who fall into the hands of a living God. Our God is so holy, we are not supposed to mess around with Him. Uh, There is a modern theology that says that God never gets angry with believers. He never gets angry with His children. That is absolutely not true. There are a number of passages that indicate that when people are living in willful rebellion against God, God does get angry with them because He loves them. He doesn't want them doing this kind of stuff. He got angry with Moses, did He not? And Moses was His... like He talked to Moses face to face like a friend. He was a man after God's own heart. Hebrews 11 speaks of Noah moved with godly fear. It moved him. It motivated him. It's a tremendous motivator for holiness. But let me tell you, it motivated Noah... To build an ark. If he hadn't had that fear and hadn't built that ark, hadn't been moved to build that ark, he'd be dead, right? And so it, it is compatible uh, with love. Hebrews twelve twenty eight. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Notice that he indicates grace enables us to have that fear. Grace is not incompatible with fear. In fact, grace will always produce that kind of a fear, will it not? And so he indicates we need fear because there's an acceptable, there's an unacceptable way of serving him, but he doesn't end there. Let me read the whole section. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, For our God is a consuming fire. One of the books that I've recommended to a number of you is When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. And this book shows how the fear of the Lord is at the heart of Christianity and how the fear of the Lord is the remedy for every other kind of fear. Uh, Lack of esteem, pride, timidity, cowardice, lack of confidence, any of those. The God of most Christians is far too small, which automatically means something's going to fill the gap. Men become very big in our eyes. We feel like we have to perform for men. We have to look good in their eyes. When people are big in our eyes and God is small, we feel very little shame before God. But boy, we feel a great deal of shame before men. Why? Because we've got things reversed in our priorities. It's a marvelous book. But the Scripture not only says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, verse 10, but the Scriptures also link the fear of God with victory over enemies. Now that's very interesting. When we have the fear of God, He becomes so big, our faith is increased so that we have victory over the enemies. That's 1 Samuel 11, verse 7, 2 Chronicles 14, 14, uh, and 17, verse 10. Uh, produces loyalty of heart. Second Chronicles nineteen nine. Produces hatred for evil. Proverbs eight verse thirteen. Produces tremendous confidence. Proverbs fourteen verse twenty six. In fact, let me read that because I think that's an incredible, an incredible verse. It says, "In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence." Wow. There's the remedy for timidity. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. Why? Because if God is big enough to be a God to be feared, then anything that people may throw at us that used to make us afraid does not bother us nearly as much as it used to. And that's why he goes on in the next phrase and he says, um, His children will have a place of refuge. Okay? In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. His children will have. A place of refuge. But if your God is not worth fearing, why would He be a refuge when you've got all kinds of enemies that are coming against you? Can you see that? Your view of how great and awesome God is is not only going to affect your fear, it's going to affect your faith in Him and why you're drawn to Him and away from others. The Scripture links the fear of the Lord with satisfaction in life. Proverbs 19, verse 23. Riches, honor, and life, Proverbs 22, 4, and many other things that the human heart longs for. It's no wonder that John Murray, in his book on ethics, he says this, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. It is at the heart of Christianity. Can you see why I say that when evangelical churches do not have a fear for God and they're flippant in the face of God, that it is a sad sign of their Christianity. Acts 19 verse 17 that we read earlier from Acts 2 says, fear fell on them all. If we do not have the fear of the Lord, we are setting us up ourselves up to be able to fall into any conceivable sin because Scripture says, by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Proverbs 16 verse 6. The fear of the Lord will keep your eyes from wandering where they should not be going. Why? Because we're not just going to be concerned about what other people see. We're going to be concerned about what God sees in our life. The fear of the Lord will keep us pure on the Internet because it focuses on pleasing God. And there is a fear of displeasing Him. Even if you know that you can't be caught, the fear of the Lord will keep you from cheating. So, the fear of the Lord is really an absolutely essential mark of being an overcomer. Here's what God says in the book of Revelation to those who desire to be overcomers Fear God and give glory to Him. Revelation 14, verse 7. There must be a God centeredness about our life and a healthy respect for His judgments that keeps us from displeasing Him. And so, my question is this Do you have the fear of the Lord? It is one of the marks of an overcomer. And in this verse, it's one of the marks of a healthy and a vibrant church. The fear of the Lord shows that we're not simply spiritual paleontologists digging up ancient artifacts. Okay, those artifacts are wonderful. Doctrine is wonderful, but doctrine alone will not produce the fear of the Lord in you. It is coming face to face with Almighty God that uh, makes that adrenaline begin to flow. And by the way, if you think that adrenaline has nothing to do with the fear of the Lord, you've got a faulty definition of the fear of the Lord. Thirty times in the Scripture, the phrase is connected. The fear of the Lord and trembling. Fear and trembling, or various such mixtures. Trembling is something that shows the adrenaline that is coming on. The closer you get to God, the more of that you sense. Even though you're attracted to Him, the closer you get, the more of that fear that you're going to have uh, within you. And so instead of um, being spiritual paleontologists, we need to have a relationship with the God of this universe, the God of holiness, the God of goodness. And it's His goodness that the next phrase focuses on. They were also walking, it says, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 31 there, that the comfort of the Holy Spirit is totally compatible with the fear of the Lord. Totally compatible. In fact, I would say the fear of the Lord is the precondition to having the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You can't have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You can't have that intimacy with the Lord without the fear of the Lord. Because when we walk in the realization that we don't ever want to cross the Lord, we don't need the discipline. We're in a situation where God delights in being intimate with us. We delight in being intimate with God. This is why Psalm 25 verse 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. The secret of the Lord, there is the intimacy, is with those who fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. He's going to take you to new levels of intimacy with Him if you fear Him. Far closer intimacy than the child who's constantly having to be disciplined because he's rebelling against the Lord and he's just bucking against the Lord's pleasure in his life. Those two really go hand in hand. The child who is always having to be disciplined because of rebellion, man, he's missing out on all kinds of opportunities to sit down on the couch and talk heart to heart with the parent and to laugh over good times and to have all. Why? Because there's this constant struggle between the father and the child. Well, the same is true with God when we are not walking with Him. And yes, we'll have some times of intimacy. Every child is going to have some of that, is he not? But he's missing out on so much. What God does is He brings discipline into our lives to teach us the fear of the Lord so that once we have the fear of the Lord and we're walking rightly with Him, we can be drawn into closer and closer intimacy. The churches in America miss this intimacy with God so much. They write about it constantly. They preach about it constantly. And yet I believe in many of the cases, not all of them, but in many of the cases, it is a counterfeit intimacy because they have no fear of God. And the Scripture is quite clear. You can't have a true intimacy with God unless you have the fear of the Lord. Those two cannot be separated. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. The reason... That this is true is as you have this sense of God's presence with you, you're going to be communing with God as he is in all of his attributes, not just his love, but you're going to be realizing his anger, not just his mercy, but you're going to be realizing his holiness. You're going to be looking at all of these things and you're going to worship him for his wrath when you begin to meditate. You're going to be worshiping Him for His holiness. You're going to be worshiping Him for all of those things. In fact, every one of His attributes is going to draw you deeper and deeper to the heart of Christ and make you want your heart to be conformable to His heart. Can you see that? The two really do fit together. Now, doctrines, as I said before, do give us highs. At least those of us who are paleontologists. We love doctrine. You know, we love to study it. But please, don't... Settle just for that. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit are a long step beyond paleontology. It comes from a relationship with a personal God. Now, can you see why the last blessing almost automatically followed? The verse says they were multiplied. Now, I'm not denying that false churches can grow. You know, Judaism had grown. Uh, Islam is growing. There are cults who grow. But it is not a sign of a healthy church when year after year the church does not grow. What do we do with this text? Well, in conclusion, let me give three things we can do with this. First of all, let's use this text to evaluate our lives and ask the Lord, Lord, where am I as an individual? Where is my family in terms of this verse? And where is this church? I think it's a healthy thing when churches will do self-evaluation on a periodic uh, level. Second, let's pray this verse. Let's pray that God would help us to grow in the midst of our pains, our afflictions, our persecutions, so that we will be holy enough to be able to appreciate and value and make good use of peace and prosperity uh, that the Lord brings into our lives. Let's pray that He would not only bring us peace, but a liveliness about our faith that makes us want to continually be moving forward. Let's pray that He would give us such a sense of His presence with us that we would have a, 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 constantly be walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And let's pray that God would cause our church to grow. You know, we really cannot financially afford to plant another church even though it would be wonderful to be able to do so. And I've had some thoughts percolating in my head uh, based on what some other churches have attempted of a multi-site one church Multi-site, and it only costs 30% more, uh, really, uh, to be able to do this, various preaching posts. But we can talk about that at a later time. But at this point, we really can't afford to be planting another church. But let's pray this verse to God and claim His grace to make this describe us. Third, let's each one of us be a part of the process of building Uh, each other up, edifying each other up, not leave that up to the pastors. Let's live out the body life of Ephesians 4. And I think if we do those three things, man, we're going to see a big difference. If we will engage in self-evaluation, praying the verse, and edifying each other, I think the Lord will prosper us. And that's my prayer, that the Lord would prosper and bless this church to His glory. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this reminder in Your Word of... The fact that even in tribulation and affliction and difficult circumstances that You can grow ideal churches. Father, we want to be uh, one of those ideal churches. Churches that uh, walk in the fear of You and in the comfort of Your Holy Spirit. Uh, We want to be churches that grow. We want to be churches that can appreciate the peace that You bring into our lives but are not destroyed uh, when You bring affliction and adversity to us. Father, I pray that You would cause us to grow by Your grace. And may You receive all the glory. In Christ's name, Amen.